Chapter 6 Leadership Best Practices Every employee deserves great leadership. Warren Bennis, who is considered the father of modern management, said most organizations are overmanaged and underled. And while I preach that it's management and leadership, not management or leadership, my experience says most managers rarely recognize, much less appreciate, forgiveness and reconciliation being a key business issue. Forgiveness and reconciliation are key leadership functions. And while we're not all managers, we're all leaders. Leadership is action, not position. Managers manage the business. Managers manage things. Leaders, on the other hand, own the emotional well-being of their people. Leaders are students of leadership, culture, emotional intelligence, organizational psychology, employee engagement, and the dynamics that create the opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation in an organization. Leaders forgive, reconcile, and facilitate these same behaviors in others. In short, if you know, you can manage. If you love, you can lead. And without some degree of love in the workplace, forgiveness and reconciliation will be virtually impossible. Creating a culture of forgiveness and reconciliation could be the most challenging, yet the most essential variable of obtaining a more nurturing and purposeful environment for your organization. Unfortunately, forgiveness and reconciliation may be the least understood leadership trait in the workplace. Executive boards should expect and demand both management and leadership. While managing an organization is essential, it's leadership that most influences forgiveness and reconciliation in the workplace. And while there are hundreds of leadership models, the following are what I feel to be the most significant based on my 20 plus years in organizational development. Practicing, living, modeling these principles will hopefully minimize the need for forgiveness and reconciliation in the workplace. And in the unfortunate but likely event it's needed, it will be delivered and experienced in a sincere, loving, and efficient manner. The Five Practices of Exemplary Leadership Beyond the horizon of time is a changed world, very different from today's world. Some people see beyond that horizon and into the future. They believe that dreams can become reality. They open our eyes and lift our spirits. They build trust and strengthen our relationships. They stand firm against the winds of resistance and give us courage to continue the quest. We call these people leaders. In their study, Jim Cozy and Barry Posner set out to discover what it took to become one of these leaders. They wanted to know the common practices of ordinary men and women when they are at their leadership best when they were able to take people to places they'd never been before. Their analysis of thousands of cases and surveys revealed the five practices of exemplary leadership. Here they are. Number one, 
model the way. I call it the shadow of the leader. Leaders establish principles concerning the way people should be treated and the way goals should be pursued. They create standards of excellence and then set an example for others to follow. Speed of the organization, speed of the leader. Because the prospect of complex change can overwhelm people and stifle action, they set interim goals so that people can achieve small wins as they work together toward larger objectives. They unravel bureaucracy when it impedes action. They put up signposts when people are unsure of where to go or how to get there. And they create opportunities for victory. Number two, they inspire a shared vision. Leaders passionately believe they can make a difference. They envision the future, creating an ideal and unique image of what the organization can become. Through their magnetism and quiet persuasion, leaders enlist others in their dream. They breathe life into their visions and get people to see exciting possibilities for the future. They have emotional intelligence. They help others see the cathedral, not just the bricks. Number three, they challenge the process. Leaders search for opportunities to change the status quo. They look for innovative ways to improve the organization. In doing so, they experiment and take risks. And because leaders know that risk-taking involves mistakes and failures, they accept the inevitable disappointments as learning opportunities. In short, they think outside those nine dots. Number four, they enable others to act. Leaders foster collaboration and build spirited teams. They actively involve others. Leaders understand that mutual respect is what sustains extraordinary efforts. They strive to create an atmosphere of trust and human dignity. They strengthen others, making each person feel capable and powerful. And lastly, but not leastly, they encourage the heart. Accomplishing extraordinary things in organizations is hard work. To keep hope and determination alive, Leaders recognize contributions that individuals make. In every winning team, the members need to share in the rewards of their efforts. So leaders celebrate accomplishments. They make people feel like heroes. So take a few minutes and rate yourself on the five practices of exemplary leadership. Number one, how do you model the way? Number two, do you inspire a shared vision? Number three, how good are you at challenging the process? Number four, do you enable others to act? And five, how are you at encouraging the heart? Be, no, do. I first heard of General Carmen Caveza, USA retired, from a friend of mine in Columbus, Georgia. General Caveza retired from the United States Army where he was base commander at Fort Benning, Georgia, the nation's largest army base. My friend had just heard the retired general speak to a group of business people and quickly emailed me a summary of his points. Number one, never depend on the first report, especially if it's an emotional issue. 
Number two, he said, be yourself. The best leader you can be is you. Number three, establish and live your values. Four, if you have good people, get out of their way and let them be good. Five, look for the pony in the barn, not just the poop on the floor. Number six, be an optimist. Seven, be a good listener. James 1.19 says, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Number eight, be patient. What looks bad at the end of the day will look better the next morning. Number nine, don't accept problems from people without hearing their suggested solution. Number 10, always strive to be better. When you die, there's always unused space in our brains. And then last but not leastly, when you're satisfied, you're ineffective. I couldn't wait to meet General Caveza. And as I waited in the conference room, I anticipated his perspective on leadership. Would he reference Peter Drucker or would he cite the military leadership of Generals Patton, Petraeus, or Powell? Would he be a Maxwell or a Covey follower? General Caveza was indeed an impressive man, yet his presence and his character made me feel comfortable and at ease. His response, simple yet powerful, was very much like his demeanor. Greg, I can sum up my general perspective on leadership in three simple words. Be, know, do. Wondering what leadership book he must have read that I had obviously overlooked in my 25 years of studying the subject, I ask, be no do? His response, be no do. Army Leadership Field Manual 22-100, which lays out the framework that applies to all Army leaders, officer and NCO, military and civilian, active and reserve. At the core of our leadership doctrine are the same Army values embedded in our force, Loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. Wow. General Caveza continued, The Army does two things every day. It trains soldiers and develops leaders. When leadership in your business breaks down, Greg, employees become disengaged. The culture deteriorates and the profits conspire out of control. When leadership in our armed forces breaks down, people die. Leadership in business is important. Leadership in the Army is essential. General Caveza defined leadership as influencing people by providing purpose, direction, and motivation while operating to accomplish the mission and improving the organization. In short, leadership in the Army transforms human potential into effective performance, said Caveza. Before moving on, what key words from General Caveza's definition grabs your attention? Why? What key words would you add? And please take a time to think about your own definition of leadership. Write it down. That small conference room was quickly transformed into a classroom as the professor continued the lecture that would change my entire perspective on leadership. General Caveza said that we demonstrate character through our behavior. And one of the key responsibilities of a leader is to teach values to subordinates. Therefore, the general explained, army leadership begins with what the leader must be. 
with the values and the attributes that shape a leader's character. He described the Army values as, number one, loyalty, bearing true faith and allegiance to the U.S. Constitution, the Army, the unit, and other soldiers. Number two, duty, fulfilling all obligations. Number three, respect, treating people as they should be treated. Number four, selfless service, putting the welfare of the nation, the army, and subordinates before one's own. Number five, honor, living up to the army values. Number seven, doing what's right, legally and morally. Number eight, personal courage, facing fear, danger, or adversity, both physical and moral. So I'll ask you, how do the above Army values relate to you personally, to your organization? Skills are those things people know how to do such as competence from the technical side of a job and the people skills required for leadership. Leaders must have a high level of knowledge and mastery of four basic skills. Number one, interpersonal skills. Coaching, teaching, counseling, motivating, and empowering others, as well as building teams. Number two, conceptual skills. The ability to think creatively and to reason analytically critically, and ethically, which are the basis of sound judgment. Number three, technical skills, job-related abilities that are necessary to accomplish the task at hand. And then number four, tactical skills. In the Army, those skills required to deploy units into combat. Again, let's pause. How would you rate yourself on the above skills of interpersonal, conceptual, technical, and tactical? And while character and knowledge are necessary, leaders must apply what they know. They must also act and do what they have learned is effective. Successful leaders build teams, execute plans, and lead change in their organizations. In the Army's language, these three areas that a leader must do are, number one, influence using interpersonal skills to lead others toward a goal, communicating clearly, motivating others, and recognizing achievement. Number two, operate, developing and executing plans, managing resources, identifying strengths and weaknesses. Number three, improve. Good leaders strive to leave the organization in better shape than they found it. They believe in lifelong learning. They're always seeking self-improvement and organization growth and development. Good leaders are also change agents. So again, we pause. How would you rate yourself on the above three leadership areas of influencing, operations, improvement? At the end of my time with General Caveza, I was speechless. I have attended hundreds of seminars, listened to hours and hours of lectures, read a room full of books, and yet never thought of spending time with the epitome of a leader, a military officer. And sadly, since the end of the draft and the establishment of an all-volunteer force in 1973, 
Fewer and fewer civilians are being exposed to the Army, its leadership, and its training. And ironically, many of us live only a short distance from a military base where numerous opportunities to learn from the nation's most committed team of soldiers and the most effective leaders in the world wait for us simply to call the public information officer and arrange a tour and a briefing from the base commander and his leadership team. So in closing, take a few minutes and rate yourself on be no do. Be living your values. No interpersonal, conceptual, technical, and tactical skills. And do influencing, operation, and improvement. The 12 Elements of Great Managing More than a decade ago, Gallup took a broad assessment of how organizations were managing their people and determined that most organizations were shooting in the dark. Gallup concluded the typical organization would commission an excruciating long-employee opinion survey, hoping that somewhere among 100 to 200 questions, it would stumble upon the most important concepts. When the numbers were crunched, they were very often too confusing to understand or form the basis for reliable observations. Even more alarming, Top management assumed there was a general level of satisfaction that pretty much applied throughout the organization and that they, the senior team, were the main drivers of the employees' feelings. All these assumptions were wrong. Gallup examined the one million employee interviews, then in its database, the hundreds of questions that had been asked over the preceding decades, and every variable on business unit performance that organizations had supplied with their employee rosters. This data was analyzed to find which survey questions, and therefore which aspects of work, were most powerful in explaining workers' productive motivations on the job. Ultimately, 12 elements of great managing and work life emerged from the research as the core of the unwritten social contract between employee and employer. Through their answers to the dozen most important questions and their daily actions that affected performance, the one million workers were saying, if you do these things for us, we will do what the organization needs of us. So how would you answer the following 12 questions as an employee? How would your employees answer the following 12 questions, which is valuable feedback for you as their manager? Number one, I know what is expected of me at work. Number two, I have the materials and the equipment I need to do my work. Question number three, at work, I have the opportunity to do what I do best every day. Number four, in the last seven days, I have received recognition or praise for doing good work. Number five, my supervisor seems to care about me as a person. Question number six, there is someone at work who encourages my development? Question number seven. At work, my opinion seems to count. 
Question number eight. The mission, the purpose, the cathedral, if you will, of my organization makes me feel my job is important. Number nine. My associates or fellow employees are committed to doing quality work. Question number 10. I have a best friend at work. Question number 11. In the last six months, someone at work has talked to me about my progress. Remember, question number four was informal. Question number four, in the last seven days, I have received recognition or praise for doing good work. That's informal. Question number 11, in the last six months, someone at work has talked to me about my progress. That's formal. And lastly, but not leastly, question number 12. This last year, I have had opportunities at work to learn and grow. So how would you rate yourself as a manager to these 12 questions? As an employee, how would you rate your organization with these 12 questions? Driver attention low. Time for a break. My third book, Healing the Wounds, Forgiveness and Reconciliation in the Workplace, was finished and in the hands of my editor. In addition to writing this book, I presented over 100 keynote speeches, 40 workshops, and coached 14 senior-level leaders of organizations over the last year. Nearly 40,000 business miles, hundreds of hotels, and more airports than I would like to remember. In short, I've been burning the candle at both ends. A text from a client confirming a 3 p.m. meeting continued this frantic pace I have grown accustomed to and honestly thrive upon. If I leave my home by 1.30, I thought, I should make this meeting in plenty of time. Then 1.30 p.m. turned to 1.45. I then remembered I needed to stop by the post office and mail 12 thank you cards to potential clients that I had met over the last week. Now it's 1.50 p.m. when I leave town. Traffic is crazy, and it's Highway 127 yard sale that stretches the entire state and brings in thousands of bargain hunters from several surrounding states. I dart in between cars in both the left and right lanes as they slow down to scout which roadside mall they will stop. Looking at my watch, I realize I'm making decent time until I encounter an older couple driving very slow and erratic in the left lane. As I pull to the right, I hear the screeching tires. I look in the side view mirror and see the car swerve, appearing to overcorrect, heading into the ditch, eventually turning over and landing on all four wheels. I find a safe place to turn around and return to the scene of the accident. As I get out of the car, a panicked young lady is getting out of her car. Crying, she asks, are you the one that cut me off? I replied, yes, I am, and I'm sorry. I will never forget her next statement. Thank you for coming back, and thank God I just dropped my baby off at the sitter. She would have died. Thank God she was not severely injured, only a few scrapes. I asked her for forgiveness, and I have since asked God for forgiveness. Now I must forgive myself. 
also thank God for watching over that young lady and her child that day. My driving will never be the same as a result of that accident. And I reluctantly share this experience in hopes that as leaders, we can translate this into organizational metaphors that will benefit those we lead. So what are the questions? As leaders, the driver, how are we cutting other people off? Number two, as leaders, what areas in our organizational lives do we need to slow down? Number three, when the sheriff arrived on the scene, he asked if there was any contact between our automobiles. When I responded, no, he told me I was free to go. I refused. And I stayed with that young lady until her family arrived. As leaders, do we stay with those who are impacted by our negligence? Number four, when we get in a hurry, we're sure to make mistakes. What activities or tasks are creating the patients that could result in negative consequences. Number five, the young lady overcorrected, leading to the accident. What happens when we and others overcorrect within our organizations? What activities or tasks are creating potential overcorrections? Number six, my driving habits have definitely changed. Will it be lasting change? How do we make sure our change in behavior is indeed long-lasting. Considered an expert in human behavior and organizational dynamics, Greg Coker is the author of Building Cathedrals, The Power of Purpose, and The Soft Skills Field Manual, The Unwritten Rules for Succeeding in the Workplace. Greg's website is gregcokerdevelopment.com. He can be reached at 270-223-8343.